What is something that awes you? I don't mean kind of like a little trite, like that's cool or uh, that's pretty neat. I'm talking about something that completely blows you away, that stuns you, that, that, that makes you almost sense like you have just encountered, touched on something that is utterly nothing short of supreme. Well, let me give you some possibilities. The minute. I mean, when you think of the minutia, uh, the mind-blowing subatomic structure of things I, I can't even begin to grab a hold of that comprise matter. I mean, when you think about that, is that just kind of like, poof? Or maybe all the way to the other end of the spectrum, the grandness, the vastness of the known universe. You know, NASA just reported this week that they discovered 715 more planets out there that they did not know about that are out there and are orbiting around distant stars. The vastness of the universe. Maybe it's feats of civilization. I don't know if you've been able to travel or you've been able to see some things like some things that come to mind are the pyramids or palaces like Versailles or the feet of flight. How in the world does it hang up there? Space travel. Like seriously, we sent people there, out there, doing that and come back? Maybe it's speed. An IndyCar, a NASCAR. <laughs> For me, how does a computer process with that kind of speed, that much data, that fast? I, I, I can't comprehend it. Or along with speed is just the speed of light. Whew. Maybe it's the arts for you. Sculpture, a painting, or dance. Like, how do they do that? Or music, when you just sit back and hear a song and you're like, stunning. Or maybe literature, a book. Speaking of books, when I think of the God's Word, just some awe-stunning realities out of God's Word is Genesis 1. I mean, the Godhead creating creation. How did, like... Genesis 7, the earth-shifting, shifting, stunning reality of the flood and completely changing the composition of the earth. Exodus 12, the Passover. The people covered by the blood. And the crossing of the Red Sea and God parting that thing and them walking out of slavery. Exodus 19, there the Israelites are at, at the foot of Mount Sinai and God is on the mountain and the mountain shakes and rumbles and thunder and God is present. I think of our study in Joshua, probably my favorite chapter was chapter three and the people standing a half mile back 
As the priests carry the ark into the flooding Jordan River and they step in and everybody's watching from a half mile back and God once again just parts it all. And then they'd walk around, not on mushy ground, but on dry ground. And where do they walk? They walk to the place that God had promised that they would be having centuries and centuries and centuries before. I'll jump all the way to the end of this book. Revelation chapter 1. The apostle John there and he sees the risen, the magnified, the fully glorified Jesus Christ standing there. Remember, this is the one that he knew that he was with for like three years of time and saw him. But here he doesn't see him and like run up and give a high five and a hug. John talks about he falls on his face to the ground because he thinks he's going to die because of the glory of Christ. Revelation chapter 4, the whole scene, the throne scene and everything around the throne and holy, holy, holy and all the just mind-blowing crazy thing of heaven. Revelation 19 and Jesus riding the white horse, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Revelation 21, no more tears. No more pain. No more suffering. And the Godhead reigns with his people forever. I'm going to add to all of that a section in Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, turn there. Please turn there now. Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament This section here tells of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to tell you folks straight up. So unworthy and little to talk about this. But we need to hear this. This has been pressing in on me all week. And we are now entering into an awe-inspiring, amazing piece of literature that needs to wake us up. And so I'll say buckle up. And if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. And when we come to certain passages like this, I just want for you to know it's full throttle because I can't cut it short. I can't wimp it out. So here's how this is going to go. I'm going to take about the next 20 minutes with you, and we're going to walk, run through this passage. And after that, I'm going to step aside. And I'm actually going to let Pastor John Piper come and uh, um, talk with us for about 20 minutes. Sometimes you just need to let the big dog speak. And um, I'll be happy to step aside and let him do that and help us understand the supremacy of Christ. So, Colossians, you there? Chapter one, ready to roll? Well, Lord, I pray as we dig into this, you would show us you, more of you, less of me, less of us, more of you. In your name we pray, amen. So far, we've been three sentences through the book of Colossians. Uh, The first sentence was verses 1 and 2. And that first sentence told us about three persons, uh, Paul, Timothy, and the 
person, the divine person of God the Father. It also told us about a people group, Colossae, the, the believers in Colossia, Colossae, who are there, and they're Paul and Timothy are writing to them. Then the second sentence is verses 3 through 8. And yeah, it's a pretty long sentence there. Uh, it's on the screen. And um, this, this long sentence, we work this out. And if you have the sheet when you grabbed it, if you didn't and you want to, go ahead and grab a sheet coming in. At the top of that page lays out the outline that we covered last week. And uh, um, I'm sorry, two weeks ago. And it was basically Paul is praying. Paul and Timothy are praying. And they're thanking God the Father for the believers in Colossae. And they're thanking them for three things. They were thanking them for the real deal faith in Christ that they have. Uh, evidence-based faith, not like a feeling-based faith, but evidence-based faith in Christ. They had a talking about thanking God for the love that they had for all the saints. Remember, love is in the scriptures is not a feeling first, it's an action first. And they were doing that. They were just feeling for people. They were actually doing love on one another. And Paul's like, way to go, man, way to go. God, thank you for doing that work in them. And then the third thing was they were thanking God for their hope laid up for them in heaven. Their hope reserved in heaven. We talked all about that and talked about how hope is causal in that statement, that it, hope is a increasing causing thing to one's faith. It strengthens one's faith. It strengthens one's love for other people and that hope laid up for you in heaven. That was the second sentence. Then we ventured into the third sentence last Sunday. Uh, it also is a long sentence. And I told you that's one sentence. And But I need to uh, confess to you that while it is one sentence, it's not quite one sentence. We'll talk about that here in a second so you don't think I've like deceived you. Verses 9 through 14, what we talked about last Sunday... It was pray asking God the Father. Paul goes from thanking God the Father to asking of God the Father. He's asking that they would be filled. Be filled with what? Be filled, the text said, with the knowledge of God. Christianity is a thinking person's reality. It's for thinking people. And here it's be filled with the knowledge of his will. And what is that? Well, it goes on to say that so that you walk in a manner. In other words, you know God so that you live life differently. Uh, what does that look like? Well, the text told us it looks like bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, more of you, Lord, more knowing you. It in also included being strengthened with his power. As we talked last week, it's not about you bucking it up and you sucking it up and you being strong. That's not the deal. The deal is actually about God being strong in you and through you and I. That's the deal. You don't need to get strong for the Lord to take you. You and I are weak. Embrace it. Go to his strength. That's the deal. Uh, we're also lastly there walking in a different manner. It means giving thanks with joy. Why? Giving thanks to the joy to the Father because he's the one who qualifies. He's the one who delivers. He's the one who transfers. Man, I wish we could have spent more time on that. Think about that. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've been redeemed through Christ, know this. God the Father was the one who came in and stamped you qualified, took and took you out of darkness and delivered you into the kingdom of the Son, as we're going to see here. God the Father did that. Not one of his little yellow one-eyed minions. <laughs> okay? God the Father did that. Well, today... We're going to finish up the sentence. And I said that was a sentence, but I want for you to know this. The actual full sentence is this. Let's go to the next one. 
There we go. That is actually verses 9 through 20 in the Greek. If you were to go there in the original language, when Paul wrote that, all of that was one sentence. How many sentences? One sentence. One sentence. That's a unified thought, a cohesive unit. Either somebody doesn't know how to write and use a period, or else this is like amazing, and I go for the latter. And really what we did last Sunday was we spent the time last Sunday in the first half of this talking about God the Father in that first section there. Today where we're at, I'm trying to get us all based here, we're talking about the text in the sentence moves from a discussion of God the Father to God the Son. And that's what we're hitting on today. So four key statements about the Son. How many key statements? Four. Statement number one is this. The son is the one whom the father loves. The son is the one whom the father loves. Look at verse 13 in your Bibles. The latter end of it. The father has transferred us to the kingdom. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. To the kingdom of his beloved son. Now I could take the time. I just don't have the time. But I'll just quickly note. notice. It's the kingdom of the son. That's a divinity statement. Jesus is not just some good guy, some moral guy, some really religious guy, some prophet. No, no, no. Uh, the, the kingdom has his name on it. It's a divinity statement that's there. But the thing I want to pull out for us today and kind of grab a hold of this, I think actually in the supremacy, is this, this, this idea that, that the kingdom is his beloved son. A literal translation of this would be the kingdom of the son of whom he loves. The kingdom of the son of whom the father loves. There's an emphatic kind of love from the father to the son. That's why I'm pulling this out. It doesn't mean that the father only loves the son, doesn't love the spirit, doesn't love anybody else. It's not saying that. This is, this is kind of a, a, a sweet moment here where it's like, listen, friends, the father loves the son. Love, 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 loves the son. This is part of the relationship that's going on. And the father is not sitting back and he's thinking, hey, wait a second here. Why is my name not on the kingdom? The father is not in this like, uh, uh, why is my name not on the sign over the pearly gates? Why doesn't it say the father's house? Why does it say the kingdom of the son? Why does Jesus get the sheriff badge in the kingdom? (laughs) Why does the father just get kind of the lousy FedEx job of check, transfer, deliver, to the end result. Listen, I bring that up in here because let's just be frank about it. That's how we do relationship. We size ourselves up. We size the situation up with different people. Why does he get that? Why does she get that? Why does she get to do that? Why did he get to make that decision? Why do they own that and not me? Hey, none of that ever happens with the Trinity. Ever, never in eternity past, not in eternity present, not in eternity future. None of that game is going on. No jealousy, no envy, no positioning, no, hey, would you just appreciate me for a little bit? None of that, none of that, say none, none of that, ever. 
It's perfect unity and perfect relationship. And God the Father loves the Son. Here's the deal. The Godhead are all about magnifying and giving glory to one another. I say it this way. The persons of the Trinity receive glory by giving glory to the other persons of the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity receive glory by giving glory to one another. The Son, no, 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 it's all about the Father's will. The Spirit's like, don't worship me, don't worship me. It's all about the Son and the Father. And here we see in this, the Father loves the Son, no competition. Why does he love the Son like this? He loves the Son like this because the Son is supreme. The Son is the one whom the Father loves. Secondly, the Son is the one in whom we have redemption. Look at verse 14. The kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. Doug, what does redemption mean? That's a very good question. Redemption means in its general context of just the word, it means to be released from a bondage by a payment. That's what redemption means. Biblically, look, it's defined in verse 14. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the removal of our bondage. It's the removal of our slavery to sin through a payment. Where does one get the payment? Where does one go for this redemption? Listen, this is very important. You don't go to a place to get redemption. You can say, I go to church. Great. But redemption does not come from going to church. Christenings do not redeem. You find that nowhere in the scriptures. Baptism in itself does not redeem. Family heritage, I grew up in a Christian home, does not redeem. Belief in beliefs, I believe in God. So do the demons, and it doesn't redeem. Even books themselves, I've read the Bible. Good, but reading the Bible does not bring redemption. Where does a person go to, for redemption? To the person of Jesus Christ only and alone. That's where redemption comes from. And so I ask these two questions really, I'm kind of preempting us for next Sunday. I ask, do you know that you need redeeming from slavery from sin? I'm serious about that. Maybe church, the Bible, and all this is very new to you. And you're like, like, say what, man? Doug, that's an insult to me. What do you say? No, I'm not saying that as an insult. I'm saying that as a reality of what God says. God says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. Every person in this room, that's the reality of it. Do you know that you are in slavery to bondage and separated from God because of sin? That's where we all start. The second question is, is have you gone to the one that can you redeem, that can redeem you from that? Jesus Christ. And you say, yes, let me ask this. When did you do that? What did that look like? I want for you to be thinking about that. Oh, and, and what did your life look like after that? Next Sunday. The son is the one in whom we have redemption. That's where we go. Number three, the son is the one who is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. We're right at verse 15, and I want to note here, uh, I think in, as you have, you have that handout, there's two sections in verses 15 and 20, kind of two main headings here. Both of them are tied by this firstborn comment, firstborn relating to creation, then firstborn relating to the church. Just real quickly, let me go through these. The first one here is this image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It says the sun is the image of the invisible God. Image, the word means icon. It means the exact representation. It means a stamp like this. If I had clay in my hand and I had a a stamp, you know, whatever you call it, and I went boom and pulled it and you never saw the stamp, but I showed you the clay and you and you ask, wait, I wonder what the stamp looks like. Well, it's pretty easy. John fourteen nine, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, that's what's happening here. That's a really a cool term for that. He's the Im- image. It's not like some fake image. It's the exact representation of. And that's only Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Firstborn, man, this can mess people up, and I understand why. It sounds like firstborn, the first one born of, like he was created from. That's what Arius thought in the fourth century out of this passage with this. Jesus was a created being. That's actually what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jesus is not God. Jesus is one more created being. He may be a high created being, but he was still a created being. And it comes out of this text, but it's a bad interpretation because firstborn in the language can carry both the meaning of the very first one born, but it also also can carry the meaning of someone that is supreme, someone of higher rank, someone of higher order. Uh, can you prove that, Doug? Be happy to. Uh, Exodus 4.22. The Israelites are called the firstborn nation. They were not the first nation on the planet. What God was saying is there they have a, they have a supreme place in, my, in the Old Testament because they were to be priests of the world. There's a firstbornness. Uh, Psalm 89, 27, it says of Solomon that Solomon is the firstborn, but he wasn't David's firstborn. The verse goes on to say, Solomon, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's using this idea of the highest above. And that's what's happening here in verse 15. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the supreme one of rank, the supreme one of importance over all creation. And that's what fits with the text. Let's keep moving. For by him, all things were created. I actually think a, a, kind of a better building out of that idea is for, for, or by, all, by means in him, all things were created. Created what, Doug? Well, let's look at the text. Things in heaven like the additional 715 planets around distant stars that we just learned about, things in heaven and things on earth, Uh, visible things and invisible things, throne things, dominion things, ruler things, and authority things. By the way, I just want to make a note to try and drive the point home. Be careful in how you talk about our authorities. Because it's a bit personal 
to our Lord. He, 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 he's the one who puts thrones in and dominions in and rulers in and authorities in. All of those things, he's the one who created them. And look, in case that's not clear enough for it, it says all things that were created were created through him and for him. (laughs) We've got to get off this idea that Jesus was this poor carpenter, hippie, sandal-like, really cool dude back in the day. We've got to get a Revelation 1 view of him. And that includes understanding that that Jesus that we see in the movies... He created everything. This whole planet created by him. The sun and the massness and the hotness of it created by him. All the other planets created by him. All the other things created by him. You created by him. The mountains created by him. The seas created by him. That's the Jesus that walked down the Via Della Rosa that at any point in time when all of his creation is spitting on him, mocking on him, rebuking him, laughing at him, at any moment of time he could have just fried them all. And the one who created the vast universe continued the cross on the Via Della Rosa with his own creation, mocking him, laughing at him, rebuking him, murdering him. And he does it willingly that we could be able to have redemption. That's the Jesus of the scriptures, not this poor carpenter kid, hippie sandal dude. Jesus Christ stands at the beginning of creation as the one to whom all things were created through. And Jesus Christ stands at the end of creation as all things being for his glory. And then look in verse 17, this transitional statement. And he himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. Not only in the beginning and not only at the end, but even right now, he is the divine glue. When science says matter, all the little stuff, subatomic particles should not hold themselves together ultimately. And they're stumped at what holds it all together. He does. He holds it all together. He is the principle that controls existence. He is the rationale and the rhyme and the reason for creation. And creation is not held together by some idea or some virtue, but by a person, person of Jesus Christ. And all things only make sense when Christ is at the center. He's before all things, the text says, and in him all things hold together, and he himself is the head of the body, the church. Number four, and I'll step aside. The son is the one who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Just in summary, his creation and his church are bound together. They both matter. It's like God's purposes for creation gestate in his church, his life. Ultimately, the church is not about, ultimately, about serving one another. That's part of it. But ultimately, the church is not about that. Ultimately, the church is about glorifying and fulfilling the redemptive purposes of Christ the head. Look at 
That's where eyes should be. He's the head. And he's the one who directs the body. He's the one who governs the body. He's the one who heads it. And he's the one who gives it strength. And his resurrection confirms his supremacy in it. He's victorious over a fallen world. He's supreme over sin. And he's conquered it. And he's conquered it because he's that big. All that other stuff before helps us to understand. That's why he's the one that conquers redemption. Because he's not just some good man. He's God who created it all and it's all for him. And then verse 18, that in everything he might have appreciation. That in everything he might have some attention. That in everything he might have what? Preeminence. By the way, not prominent. Preeminence. That in everything he might have preeminence because the Father was well pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, dwell. By the way, that doesn't mean something that's added to. That means something that's permanently always been there. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, all things on earth, all things in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. Friends, the resurrection is not even just about conquering sin and providing hope for you and I. The resurrection ultimately brings together all of creation. It's way even more bigger than your and my own redemption. It's all of his creation is going to come back in order one day. Because he's that big. And that's who he is. I just say this text, you cannot walk away from this text and ask yourself the question, who do I really think he is? And if you think he's some inspiration, that's an insult. And if you think he's an important part of life as a trophy in your life, that is an insult. He is the supreme God, creator, redeemer, everything. And he deserves your and my supreme attention. And I stop. And I pass the baton to Pastor Piper.